0: PT ProTalk Podcast, the fastest way to increase your knowledge with the brightest minds of physical therapy in your pocket. Welcome to PT ProTalk Podcast. I am Mariana Tondo, your host for today. In this episode, Greg Lynch is going to talk about the use of the McKenzie method in high performance sports. Greg has 30 years of experience as a physical therapist and is McKinsey diplomat since 1994. Greg is a senior and international lecturer with the McKinsey Institute International, a member of the Institute Education Council and also a member of the Board of Trustees. Greg has been an accredited provider with High Performance Sport New Zealand since 2000 and was a founding director of Wellington Sports Medicine. I hope you enjoyed the show. PT Pro Talk podcast is only possible with the support of the forward-looking and innovative company Rangemaster, the most trusted brand for shoulder therapy tools. Available now on Amazon. Rangemaster has been specializing in professional grade at-home and in-clinic rehab tools for almost 30 years. All of their products are available through distributors at rangemasterpt.com and on Amazon. So either you stock items or refer patients to buy online, they've got you covered. One thing I love about Rangemaster, they offer all physical therapists free samples. Get yours today by going to rangemasterpt.com and click Get a Sample. Hi Greg, welcome to PT Pro Talk. How are you today?
1: Thanks, Mariana. Um, I'm great, thank you. And it's a pleasure to be here.
0: Awesome. So let's jump right in. Could you tell us a little bit about yourself, your career and how did you get to where you are right now?
1: Sure, so I'm a physiotherapist uh, based in New Zealand and I graduated in 1991, so 30 years now as a physiotherapist uh, in in New Zealand. I, um, I initially worked on a chronic low back pain project for the first couple of years when I graduated with the McKenzie Institute and it was looking at patients that were on Our workers compensation scheme and had been off work for a minimum of three months and and on average they'd been off work for about two years so i i worked as a junior physiotherapist on this chronic back pain project and then when that research project finished i went into private practice and uh and then continued my education. So I completed the Diploma in Mechanical diagnosis and Therapy through the McKenzie Institute in 1994, and then a Diploma in Manipulative Therapy in 1996. And since the year 2000, I've been working with a group called High Performance Sport New Zealand. So that's a, a group in New Zealand, which is a sort of a government organisation that looks after our high-performance athletes, the Commonwealth Games athletes, Olympic Games athletes, uh, athletes heading off to World Championships, that type of athlete uh, I sort of subcontract to. Uh, And then since 2004, I've been working with Mackenzie Institute International, both as as an instructor within New Zealand, but also as an international instructor. So heading off to countries where we don't have faculty to provide the education program. So I Go into countries such as I've been to Argentina and Brazil, uh, Chile, around a number of the Asian countries, so uh, Taiwan and China and Japan, and to South Africa, Spent a bit of time in India, just helping out the, the education program in these countries. And um, where else? So I, in 2011, I was one of the founding directors of a sports medicine um, clinic in Wellington with a sports physician and another physiotherapist and over the last few years I've been looking at more of a governance sort of role so I've been involved with the McKenzie Institute's uh, education council since 2017 and with the McKenzie Institute board of trustees since 2018 so looking at a bit more of a governance role within the McKenzie Institute International um, which is certainly uh, taken taken me to to different areas and considering different things Um, and and throughout this whole time I've had my own clinic, a private practice clinic where we have a number of staff, Uh, it's a McKinsey certified clinic, we have a large gymnasium, an area for rehabilitation, we work with a number of other professions. Um, so, that sort of is, is my foundation, that's, that's what keeps me busy during the time, and then the rest of the time is involved with, with various aspects around the mckenzie Institute um, International. Uh, and I've also been involved um, a little bit of research over the last few years as well, writing a number of papers as a, as a co-author. So, that's, that's sort of my life, my last 30 years, it's uh, been reasonably busy and uh, fun times.
0: That's awesome, that's quite a history. And yeah. probably keep you very busy for these <laughs> last few years. And like how many years of experience, that's amazing. All your background, all your, your, your participations with the McKinsey Institute, your clinic, um, I think that's awesome. Um, so we are going to talk today more specifically about the high-performance sports. So, how did you start your interest in this, this high-performance sports?
1: Um, I, I, for one, have always been interested in sport. I enjoy sport. I enjoy trying to keep as healthy as I can. So, I've always been involved in some level of sport. Uh, never never at had a, had a high-performance level in terms of my own participation. Uh, very much a weekend warrior and, uh, and trying to just get out there and enjoy sport. Uh, but actually my involvement really started from the sidelines. So my son was heavily involved in swimming. And so I used to go along to his, uh, swimming lessons and he became a a good, competent swimmer. And, uh, and so I, I would speak with other parents and coaches and other swimmers and slowly got involved with, um, treating and managing some of these swimmers who would then progress as they, they got older and, and more talented and, um, and just my involvement with the swimmers and with their coaches and uh, seeing them develop. I, I, I got more involved with that particular sport, which then opened up the doors to, to other sports. And then with my involvement with the the group High High Performance Sport New Zealand, um, that allowed me to see other athletes, um, individuals as well as as athletes within teams. And it just sort of grew over time. So a lot of it was spent uh, initially, just literally on the sideline or on the side of the the pool deck um, and then just grew from there. and, And as I say, just doors got opened and, I started seeing other athletes um, and and got involved with other other sports. So, so it sort of was a real progression over a number of years.
0: And so I'm curious to ask, you with all your background and your experience, so how do you manage these athletes? Like do you use, do you combine different techniques? How do you see the use of McKenzie with these athletes and manual therapy? So how do you uh, approach? And uh, these type of uh, high performance athletes,
1: right? So yeah, I, my foundation is is certainly the McKenzie method, uh, mechanical diagnosis and therapy, and and that really is my foundation in terms of assessment, and in terms of management. And what I've found over the years is that the principles behind the McKenzie method fit really nicely into the management of of active people, of athletes, um, whether that's the weekend warrior right through to the high performance athlete. Um, because I think uh, if we look at the McKenzie method, it is we, we talk about force progressions. So we talk about self-management, patient generated forces, but we also talk about the use of clinician overpressure, mobilization, and manipulation. So it has those progressions in terms of manual therapy as required. Um so, so from one aspect, yes, I do do manual therapy, but it's part of the context of those force progressions. And in terms of the athlete, um, what I've found is, is often we need to look at a strength based program. But again, that comes into some of the principles around uh, the McKenzie method in terms of management of certain conditions, such as contractile dysfunction or tendinopathy. Where we do look at a strength-based program, a loading. So it really is dependent on the athlete, what they what they require. So I always look at the MDT, mechanical diagnosis and therapy, as as quite a broad type of management um, that we are doing with the athletes. I'm not sure if that answered your question or <laughs> whether that helped.
0: It does. I have many more. So it's going to be clear. Let's going to become more clear. Let's keep going. Uh, So what type of syndromes do you see more often in athletes? The mechanical syndromes.
1: Yeah. So I think if we look at most of the athletes I see, it would be probably the, the, the number one classification would be derangement. Um, or what we term derangement in the the McKenzie terminology. Uh, And and that would be consistent with what we see in the general population as well. So um, it's certainly a number of derangements. So those conditions that demonstrate directional preference. uh, On top of that, the the next most common would probably be the contractile dysfunction, I would see, which is probably a higher proportion than what I'd see in the general population. So the, the tendinopathies. And then the other classifications would be around potentially trauma or structurally compromised uh which fit into the other subgroup so and and then just trying to determine how we manage each of those so i think derangement certainly which is exciting for a an athlete if we can demonstrate directional preference with them and show them what what movements they can do to Reduce their their pain or symptoms and improve their function, then that's always exciting for an athlete because you can get a quick turnaround. Um, but certainly, contractile dysfunctions uh, are a high proportion as well. And as I say, probably more so in the athlete, I would see this at various stages of contractile dysfunction compared to what I'd see in the general population. Uh, and then, you know, considering those other. Classifications such as trauma or structurally compromised, or, or potentially serious pathology in terms of fractures, sometimes. So we need to keep an eye out and, uh, and and make sure that we're excluding those other other conditions as well.
0: Yeah, and my question is about the contractile dysfunction um, that you see in athletes that you see that you said that is way more often than the normal population. And considering that they are in like a high-performance sport, so how do you deal with that that um, that with that syndrome, that problem? And how do you deal with the loads? So do they have to stop their training? Do, you, do they have to reduce their training? Do they reduce it if you recommend? And how do you progress loads? Because I assume they probably need a lot of load to get on their uh, point of... Uh, Point of pain, or to be like effective. So, how does that um, sound with combining that type of treatment with that type of athletes?
1: Yeah, so great question around the contractile dysfunction with with the athlete. So, so for those listeners who are not sure, contractile dysfunction is the is akin to tendinopathy that we hear in the in the literature. Um, so, contractile dysfunction. It has so many variables that we need to consider, uh, and and as we know, contractile dysfunction will present in different ways. So you you may have an athlete who has just literally changed something in their training routine, and a day later or two days later, they develop these these symptoms and this swollen tendon. Um, and how do we manage that compared to an athlete who has several months worth of uh, a consistent pattern in terms of a tendon-related problem. So so there's lots of variables, and you've really got to consider what stage is the condition? Um, Is it something that we need to unload because they have suddenly loaded up um, their tissue? Or is it something that we can actually implement a loading program? So I think when you're with an athlete, you need to get an understanding, one, their age comes into it a little bit. So, you know, a younger person in their early 20s with a contractile dysfunction may be quite different to maybe your master's athlete, so a person much older. So you need to consider their age. You need to consider their sport. What are they doing in terms of, is it a high explosive type sport like sprinting or hurdles or a high jump or a javelin thrower uh, versus maybe an endurance sport such as cycling or road running, uh, swimming, these sort of things, uh, you need to consider where are they at in terms of their competition and tournaments. So are they during season or is it in the off season? And how do you manage those differently? So obviously if it's during season, then you're going to have to manage it quite differently because they're still wanting to compete, they're still wanting to play. Um, and is it appropriate to, for them to be competing and playing? Or are they in the off-season where potentially you've got more room that you can actually structure their rehabilitation program a bit more around the, that, that rehab of that condition versus potentially working in with other aspects when they're during season? Um, so all of these things you need to consider. So if we think about uh, that more acute onset and, and we sort of consider the continuation model that uh, Jill Cook and her colleagues have have proposed because that fits really nicely with the way that we would manage these, these patients. Um, so if we have that reactive teninopathy, so that more acute contractile dysfunction, the cause of that is due to some change in their load, so some increase in their load. So we need to have an understanding of What training have they done over the last sort of few weeks that has resulted in them causing this problem? Uh, But ultimately, we will need to unload that tissue to allow it to settle down and then load that tissue back up to the point where they're able to uh, participate again. So that needs to be a very structured way of of doing that Um, versus the more chronic contractile dysfunction, which... Basically, that tissue doesn't have the capacity, doesn't have the strength or endurance uh, to do the activity or sport that they need. So this requires more strength-based program. Maybe looking at endurance as well. Maybe looking at explosive or plyometric exercise as they improve. So it really is dependent on how the patient presents, at what stage they're at in terms of their training, competition to then what we need to be doing to, to manage it. So it's, it's not a, a one-size-fits-all approach. We need to think about all these different variables uh, in terms of their management.
0: Yeah, it makes sense. It's complicated. And as you said, a lot of different variables. I was just thinking I was an athlete when I was from like from eight years old until like 15. I used to do artistic gymnastics. And like I used to train my my training was like four hours daily for like all oh, like this eight nine ten years, and we had that's what that was the reason why I wanted to be a physical therapist because I I went to PT before and after my my practices, and I was always injured and that's what was that like this that that got my attention and curiosity about physical therapy because they would do like some uh, analgesic stuff and I would go training and you had to do that splits with your legs like 180 degrees. <laughs> and then I couldn't do anymore because it was like, I had probably like a contractile dysfunction. I don't know in that time, but um, I wasn't able to heal and treat that accordingly because we didn't have time to stop practicing because you always had competitions and, and things. And then finally I didn't, I had to take it out of my, 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 my series because I couldn't do it. And until this day, it's still like, I feel that the, the tissues is still restricted. So that was, I was wondering, like in that case is that you have to do it because you need the points and you, you are in a competitive level. So then what do you do? Like, that's hard because if you stop the load and then you cannot practice and you don't have time because you gotta be, you know, it's just very conflicting so that was like the reason of my question to try to understand because back there I mean I was eight nine ten years old I had no idea what's going on I just followed the orders and end up having a bunch of injuries so it's just interesting to hear this point of view and how do you deal with these different types of cycles of training and competitions and and what you do in each one so I think that's very interesting
1: yeah, and I think, you know, what you highlight is something that we often do here, and that's these athletes and general population with these contractile dysfunctions, that just, it continues and it, it comes comes and goes and continually waves around. Um, and, and they struggle with um, this recurring nature or this persistent nature of this um, complaint. And I think that's where you need to, you need to be considering the, the classification. So we've got this contractile dysfunction, but that's that's a very tissue-based um, approach. You need to be considering the athlete as a whole. And what are they doing in terms of where are they at at the moment? What are they wanting to do? So are they wanting to compete or have they got a tournament coming up? And um, you need to also talk to their coach uh, there may be their strength and conditioning trainer, maybe their parents if they are younger athletes, and and really looking at uh, that bigger picture, that broader picture of what are they like at the moment and where are they heading, uh, but also how they got to this problem. And it, it, we know that contractile dysfunction is not necessarily something that you can turn around quickly. Uh, Certainly that reactive tendon, it may be something that responds well to appropriate unloading of the tissue and then graduated loading back up. So the reactive tendon, uh, that that more acute contractile dysfunction, yes, you may be able to turn that around quickly and, and try to prevent future episodes by just giving the coach and the athlete a bit more of an understanding of why they have developed this. And and how do we prevent that in the future? But those patients who have uh, more chronic or persistent contractile dysfunction, we need to be realistic in terms of the timeframes that we're looking at. And I think a lot of the problem that we see with physiotherapists or with the sports medicine fraternity is that we try and do these quick fixes or we try and do these special gadgets or injections to try and change things around quicker, whereas we know it's a... It's a we've seen changes in that tissue. It's going to take time to remodel, for one of a better word, or build the capacity of that that tissue back up to a point where they can function at the level they need to. And that that takes time. That takes weeks, if not months. And some aspects you may be looking at twelve to eighteen months. So it's how do you manage this with with the patient and what's the appropriate level? It's, it's certainly probably one of the hardest. Uh, conditions to look at but it's not something that you should only look at the, that tendon or that contractile element in isolation you need to look, look at much much more broader picture and what are they doing
0: yeah because when you are practicing you're not isolating that tandem so how you are going to ask these athlete to stop in doing activities that put load on that tissue specifically if pretty much like everything they do, depending on this part of course, I'm thinking here about my experience, how I'm not gonna load the tendon if everything that you're doing is so like high impact and and, and it requires you to do like the full range of motion and explosion and flexibility. How do you make these athletes just uh, stop loading that? It's 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 very hard on the, the, on the practical side of things.
1: To, yeah and add them indeed. to top. yes, yeah, and then I think one of the main things with the athlete is very rarely would I say, right? You need to stop this activity. I think you need to work out what level of load they can tolerate and keep them at that level. Uh, but maybe we need to look at cross training. Maybe it's someone who is, A volleyball player and has developed a contractile dysfunction of knee extension so maybe a patellar tendinopathy during the season so maybe we need to avoid certain jumping type activities in terms of their training during the week maybe we can get them onto a bike or doing other activities where they're cross training um get them onto things like the leg press or or different regimes so so they're not doing that explosive action. So we're, we're using uh, sort of cross-training as opposed to saying, right, you need to stop that activity altogether. So, yeah. so I don't know any athlete who ever responds well to being told that they need to stop. We always look at alternatives. One of the yeah. main things that I've found with coaches and strength and conditioning trainers is if you give them the options about what this athlete can do as opposed to always saying to them that they can't do this, then the response and the rapport that you build up with the athlete and the coaches is certainly much better.
0: Yeah. So it's given them Absolutely. options. Absolutely. <laughs> and I think it's, it depends a lot on the coaches uh, because at some point I had coaches that they were not so aware of these problems or worry about it. I had three uh, lower back stress fractures when I was like nine years old, 10 years old because of repetitive training. And then after that with another coach, at some point when I was like, I was 14, I was like super injury, like about to stop because of all many problems. And then they were, their approach was different and I did exactly that. Just strengthening program, some like uh, aerobics on the bike and just trying to stay like um, strong. And then I went to compete. It was much better than like just keep repeating the same things and get an injury. Even that you're not practicing, you know, the movements, you just keep yourself in a good physical condition. And then um, at least my experience was it was much better than trying to put stress and don't let your body recover and, and of the injury. So that's another point that depends a lot on the coach's mindset as well, as you said.
1: Yeah, indeed. And I think it's it's really important. So often I'll have if I've got an athlete who comes to me who has had recurring injuries, then I think it's really important that you bring in the the broader team. So that the coach, maybe parents, if it's a it's a younger athlete, and really demonstrating to them or showing to them where the athlete is and what the issues around the athlete is in terms of Um, potentially strength or flexibility uh, in terms of potentially the the training regime that they're doing at the moment, how it may be inappropriate and um, sitting down with them and and working out a a plan with them. Um, Otherwise, you're just going to have this continuation of uh, recurring injuries um, and everyone just gets frustrated then. So it's better to sit down with them early and work out a, a strategy or a plan for the future, and and a little bit around timeframes as well, so they have an understanding of of you know what are we looking at. Um, but unless you do that, unless you work in with the coach uh, and, and parents and things, y- you're going to struggle. So it's it's one of the really important things to do. Um, you're, you're working with the athlete, but you're working with their their whole team as well.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You gotta have
1: that
0: bias. Yeah, it's not gonna work otherwise.
1: No, Um, it's not
0: gonna be good. (laughs) And what is the difference between the use of MDT in the normal population and on these high performance athletes? So, like, my question is more like, for example, in derangement, some athletes, for example, gymnasts, they have a lot of range of motion. So, sometimes it's harder to reduce the derangement. So do you notice any differences like that in normal population and high-performance um, athletes?
1: Yeah, there certainly is a, is a difference. And I think probably a lot of it comes down to the amount of repetitive movement or repetitions that the athletes will do in, in terms of their, their sport, whatever that sport is. Um, you know, for example, I, I mentioned earlier about swimmers, and we know that swimmers, when they get to a reasonable level, they may be training, similar to yourself, maybe up to eight to nine sessions per week. And in each of those sessions, they may be doing several kilometers or miles in terms of their swimming. And if we think about the amount of repetitions they're doing, they may be doing 6,000 strokes or so during a session, which equates to, for an elite athlete, that's so somewhere like 2 million strokes per year. So they're doing these incredible amount of repetitive type movements. And as you alluded to, if if we find that we have classified a patient, an athlete with a derangement, then trying to reduce that derangement, derangement, trying to restore that full range of of movement um, can be quite difficult with some of these athletes because they're doing such repetitive motion. So you're going to have to really think outside the square and how does that athlete Achieve enough of the directional preference exercise to get reduction of that range so that they can function again. And it may be that they need to do many, many repetitions. Uh, Maybe it's pre training, during training, post training. Uh, Maybe they need to, if they are really flexible, like you've alluded to some of the gymnasts, then how do we achieve those end range movements that we we know we need to do to? to reduce that derangement. So do we use other apparatus? Do we get them up onto steps of the doing extension and lying and really trying to achieve that end range? Um, so you, you really need to think outside the square in terms of, of that. How do we achieve that? Uh, but I think a lot of the time, it is we're, we're having to consider the amount of repetitions that the athlete does, either repetitions or the load that they're, they're applying. Um, And how how can we manage that in terms of the context of their training and their sport?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Because if they're doing a thousand repetitions of the movement that makes them worse, it's not going to be 10 repetitions every two or three hours that are going to (laughs) do the opposite, right?
1: No, no, indeed. We need to get away from that sort of dogmatic (laughs) approach of 10 repetitions every two hours. We're certainly not going to see improvement there. (laughs)
0: <laughs> uh, and 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 how do you see a traditional sports physio versus a McKenzie sports physio? That um, I think it's not as common having a physios that work with sports that have the McKenzie background and. Um, I think it's, in the, it's very different from the traditional approach. So how do you see the use of one and other in your practice and your experience? Uh, and how do they possibly complement each other? Or is something missing in one or in the other? Like, So how, do, how is your vision about that?
1: Yeah, if, if we look at the traditional sports physiotherapy or sports medicine model, typically it is based around a pathoanatomical anatomical diagnosis. So the, the clinician is trying to find that diagnosis based around that, that pathoanatomical structure. What is causing the pain? Um, or they, they will become very reliant on imaging to, to try and work out what is causing the pain. So it's, it's very much based on, on that. And that will then typically dictate how they manage that, that patient. So from the an MDT perspective, a McKinsey Method perspective, we're looking at more of a classification based and and how do we classify that patient based around the symptomatic and mechanical response to repeated movements? Can we see changes in in terms of their functional ability if we look at certain repeated movements? So it is very much more based on the classification and their response to movement and to load as opposed to a potentially a path anatomical diagnosis or or imaging. Now that's not saying that imaging is not important. It may be important, particularly if you've got someone who is classified as possibly structurally compromised. So are we looking at a an irreducible meniscal type problem around a knee or um or other conditions such as uh a bone stress reaction or a fracture or something like this. So certainly imaging is important at times, but I would say that traditionally there has been an overuse of imaging and an over-reliance on imaging to then guide that clinician in terms of management. And I think that we have issues with that. We know that imaging is not always a reliable source um, or means for us to guide the athlete or in our management. We know that there are many changes in terms of um, uh, patients' x-rays or ultrasound or MRI that may not be relevant to the patient. We know that there are changes in structure in the asymptomatic population so that when we see changes or or pathology on imaging, how do we know whether that's relevant or not to that patient? And I think we've got to be careful about uh, over-reliance on imaging and, and allowing imaging to guide our treatment. Whereas what we look at with the McKenzie method is more our management, our treatment is guided by the, the, the symptomatic and mechanical responses. Uh, and I think that's, that's where we differ a lot. So, again, that's not saying that I won't refer for imaging. I think imaging can be really important in certain contexts, but it's certainly not something that I would be referring every athlete to. And, and I do observe that athletes tend to get imaging much faster than the general population. Uh, you might have an athlete who injures himself on, on a Saturday in sport and they, they, they get an MRI on the, on the Monday. Um, again, there may be reasons for that that are very valid. Uh, If we are looking at serious pathology, but I think a lot of the time it's, it's not um, based around that. So I wouldn't look at imaging in terms of uh, guiding my management in a lot of cases, because I think that that has it can bias the clinician and it also has issues in terms of how the athlete would see that imaging. So if they see changes on imaging, how does that affect them from a biopsychosocial perspective? How does it affect them in terms of uh, those contextual factors where they're thinking, I have changes on imaging now, is that, am I just going to get worse from here on in? Um, I think it does have quite an impact on the way that they look at things. And uh, and the other thing that I would look at is much less reliance on passive treatment, so much less reliance um, on massage, um, certainly electrotherapy modalities, uh, certainly things that may be in vogue, so things that appear to be quick fixes, so uh, the use of kinesio tapes, the K-tape, um, the use of dry needling, uh, some of the some of these passive treatments that I think gives the athletes a wrong impression of what's happening. So again, if we look at derangement, we know that they, to classify derangement, they've had to have a directional preference. So we know there's a certain movement that we, uh, the athlete can do that will improve their symptoms, improve the mechanics, improve their function, Return them to the activity that they can do. So, we know that exercise alone for that person is going to be uh, really beneficial to them. If we look at the contractile dysfunctions, we know that it is going to take time to build up the capacity of that tissue, the strength, the endurance, the ability to uh, absorb um, quick movements, explosive movements. We know that it takes time. So, If we are applying these quick fixes, such as uh, using massage or electrotherapy modalities, whether that is ultrasound or laser, uh, or applying kinesio tape or dry needling, it's giving the athlete the wrong impression. They're expecting a quick response, uh, but we know that these take time. So it really gives the wrong impression to the athlete of how to manage this more long-term uh, pathology that is going to take time to 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 remodel and to get them back to the level that they need to so it, my view is that it, it really comes back to the education of the patient giving them the the understanding of time frames what they need to do rather relying on these sort of quick fixes to get them through um, into a, uh, into their sport again so where I would be looking is is not so reliant on imaging, but not saying that imaging is not important in some cases. Um, giving the athlete education about what they need to be doing to manage their condition and to get them back to full performance um, and not becoming reliant on a lot of these small passive treatments, which as I say, I think just gives the wrong impression of how to manage their condition. So that's where I think that it differs from the traditional sports sort of management
0: very good very good and uh it just came to my mind now how about the recovery of function that we do um after like for example the rangement? do you do the same thing with the athlete do they need a recovery of function how does it work
1: uh yeah that's a great question because recovery of function traditionally recovery of function we've looked um poorly at in terms of we've looked at restoring range of movement and that has been the recovery of function um and but now we we know that it is much more diverse than that it's much broader than just looking at the ability of someone to move to a full range what we need to consider is what is the goal that the athlete needs to get back to what do they need to get back to in terms of their sport their activity their training um and use that as a recovery function so we range of movement may be important so flexibility may be important um, restoring that joint mobility is important uh, but also looking at strength around that what do we need to do to get them back to their sport so for example a high jumper who has had a derangement in the knee yes we need to restore the mobility in that knee um, and as the derangement reduces we should recover that that range of movement, but maybe they've got a strength deficit that they have an inability to l- jump using that one leg, so do we need to look at a strength based program um, to restore that, so we need to think about the goal that the athlete is getting back to and what do they need to do to get back to that, so recovery of function is all around that in terms of range of movement, um, strength Uh, confidence for that athlete to return to that sport so if they've had a significant trauma say we need to build up their um, their confidence to return to that sport so you need to scale back their specific movement that they need to do that they may have concerns with and gradually build that up so that they are able to return to that so for example again if we use that high jumper if they are concerned about jumping off that leg then we use that as our goal but we scale it back so it may be that they have built up a strength program and then an endurance program with their strengthening and then do we get them doing skipping so double leg then do we get them progressing to single hop and then triple hop and then side to side hop and then vertical hop, all these sort of things to build up their confidence that they can get back to it. And that's where I would look at the recovery of function. Um, So quite a broad um, sort of approach that we need to look at rather than just what historically we've looked at has been uh, returning range of movement, which I think is only one small component of that whole recovery of function.
0: All about functionality what they need to be functioned actually. So we just, just apply that to their environment. What do they need to be functioned and be able to perform their, their sport, right? Yeah. Okay, so let's transition to the final questions. So what is your favorite resource of information? Any books or papers, anything in particular that you would like to share?
1: um so favorite resource of information i think um if we look at books that i would look at certainly clinical sports medicine from brookner and khan is very good as a as a nice basis and i think a really balanced approach for any physiotherapist to to have an understanding of um, so that's a really good resource to look at um, some of the journals from aspartar coming out are really nice journals because they are really clinically focused uh, as opposed to a lot of data that you get from other journals, uh, some more research-based. The the work from ASPITAR gives a a clinician a really nice clinically orientated um, approach to to sports medicine. Um, So those are sort of some resources that are nice. Certainly the research from Jill Cook and her colleagues um, Craig Purdom, Sean Docking, Ebony Rio. The work that they're doing around tendinopathies um, has been instrumental in certainly the way that we uh, apply our management to tendinopathies or contractile dysfunction. And their continued work um, is, is really encouraging of what they're looking at. Uh, uh, I, I do look at the work by Tim Gabbett, looking at the acute chronic workload ratio, and I think that's really important. I know there's been some criticism of that model, but I think for an athlete or a coach who's working out their training regime, I still think it has really good, important aspects to it in terms of working out how to do training and try to reduce uh, injury in the future. And then I would certainly have a bias around some of the research that I've been involved with, uh, and in particularly the, what we call the XBOS study, which is Extremity Pain of Spinal Sorts. So that was a study that we, we did. Uh, Richard Rosedale, the International Director of Education, um, was the one of the lead authors, plus one of his colleagues, Ravi Rastogi, uh, and a number of other colleagues of mine were involved in this study where we looked at patients presenting with purely extremity pain, um, who either felt that their pain was from the extremity or their referring physician felt that that was an extremity complaint. And then we looked at uh, differentiating um, those patients who had pain of extremity, Versus those patients who had extremity pain but were of the spinal source. So we looked at their neck or thoracic or lumbar spine. And overall we found 43.5% of patients presenting with extremity pain actually had a spinal source. Um, and it varies depending on where, where in the body that is. But you know, a significant proportion of patients uh, presenting, and that's really changed the way that we assess patients presenting with extremity pain. So I think that's a that's really important. And, and we're currently looking at a paper, a follow-on paper, looking at predictors in the history and physical examination that may help clinicians to identify those patients presenting with extremity pain of a, of a spinal source. And we're, we're currently working on that project at the moment. So I have a particular bias around that paper um, that I think people should have an awareness of. <laughs>
0: That's a big number, 43% is a lot, and it does change it's
1: significant.
0: things, yeah, it's it's very interesting. Um, and what would be the best advice you can give to clinicians that are starting their careers?
1: Uh, best advice, so starting their careers, I think um, having, having a, a mentor that they can talk to, um, about patients and and uh, sort of a sounding board as a, as a mentor. So guiding them in terms of their management, their assessment about their um, treatment of certain patients. So having a mentor is really good. But building up a network as well. So a network of fellow clinicians, so physiotherapists or osteopaths or chiropractors, uh, sports physicians, um orthopedic specialists, so building a network is really important. And if they're wanting to get into sports physiotherapy, then seeing what sports they're interested in and building up from the grassroots, so building up from the younger athletes, um, working with them and their coaches and their parents. As those younger athletes mature and developing, Go higher into um, more regional and national and international. Then working with them. So starting off at the grassroots and building up, and uh, and, and working with those teams um, because you need the experience. You need an understanding of of how the athletes feel about uh, their whole team around them. So so looking at that, uh, also. I would strongly advise trying to keep away from the latest things that may be in vogue or gadgets that are out there saying that they can speed up the healing or uh, help with recovery. Um, because we see a lot of these come in vogue and then they go after a matter of weeks or months or years. You know, be wary of things like kinesio tape, or, um, dry needling, some of these more passive modalities Stick to the proven, which is exercise-based and looking at that as opposed to some of these things that may be in vogue. And really having, continuing your education around it, so continuing to advance your skills. Um, but as I say, just being wary about maybe what some people are saying. Um, stick to the, the proven as opposed to, what may be in vogue at 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 present it would be would be my advice. So so get a mentor, work on a network, and just be wary of some of the, the latest gadgets and things of vogue would be my advice.
0: <laughs> awesome. And what personal qualities or abilities that you think are important to become a successful PT? Um,
1: successful PT, I, I think one of the Key elements of a successful physiotherapist is a a person who has the ability to listen an ability to listen to their patient rather than being the person who continually talks. So let the patient talk, listen to them, be an active listener rather than passive. Um, Too often do we see in research and this has been validated and too often do i observe where clinicians are the ones that continually talk and don't allow the patient to tell their story uh, inform the clinician of what's happening too often i think physiotherapists can be the dictators in terms of the the consult uh let the let the patient be the the person who talks the most so Ability to listen, I think, is really important. The ability to communicate with the patient and anyone around them is really important and communicate at their level, not using a lot of medical lingo, uh, terminology, being wary of um, being too uh, invasive in terms of the terminology and language that you use. Because I think a lot of the time we can scare patients around some of this. Um, having empathy and sympathy towards the patient about what they're they're going through and their journey that they're going through and how does it impact them from uh, what they're doing in terms of their sport or hobbies or or work? How does it affect them um, in a much broader way rather than just thinking about the condition that they're presenting with? And having really good clinical reasoning skills. So that's based around your history and your physical examination and how does that guide you in terms of your management? So those are sort of the qualities that I think make a really good physical therapist.
0: Yeah, and sometimes the language is, we we are so used to think this way and talk this way and we don't realize that we are talking Greek to the patient. So I think that's very yeah. important too. Yeah. Yes, So Greg, for the ones that want to know more about you or about your career or contact you, do you have any contact information that you can um, give us?
1: Yeah, certainly. So if anyone did want to contact me or ask me any questions, then um, probably the easiest way is actually to look on the McKinsey Institute website. And as as myself as a clinician, um, you'll find me there under the New Zealand branch. That's probably the easiest way, way to contact me because that's something that will always be updated if uh, anything else changes. Um, and I'm more than happy to answer any questions or emails from, from clinicians about maybe management of athletes or anything along those lines. So more than happy to accept emails or, or correspondence.
0: Awesome. Greg, thank you so much uh, for taking the time to talk to me today and with our listeners. I really appreciate. I've been participating in many webinars from the McKenzie Institute with you. So I've been following you over these years and it's a, uh, my pleasure to have you here today.
1: Thanks, Mariana. It's been wonderful to, to have this talk with you and all the best.
0: Thank you. Questions, suggestions or topics you want to hear about, talk to me on ptprotalk.com. Join our email list to receive updates and new episodes and subscribe here. Tell your friends about it and be sure to share. Also, leave us a review and let us know what you think. We are going to publish today's video recording on my YouTube channel, so you can check the link out in the show notes. Thanks for joining us and I'll see you next time.